HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by you. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member today. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from pretty damn close to 12, actually, this time, from Roberta's Pizzeria, uh, Roberta's, Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn! Joined as usual with Nastasia Lopez. How you doing? Good. You're hammering it up the, mm-hmm. this weekend? Yeah, getting ready for the Christmas? Nastasia Lopez has stolen, stolen, she asked for it, it wasn't stolen. I wish it was stolen, it would be a little bit better if it's stolen, but get this, people. She stole some boughs from the official oh, yeah. Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. And so in the next week, in the next couple of days, actually, if we can ever be in the same room long enough, Nastasia and I are going to distill Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. So... What's, this, what's the tagline? Oh, I forget. What was it? We did something good, right? Get lit on... What was it? You'll think of it in a second. But the whole point is, is that if you want the opportunity to actually be drinking the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. Suck it, because it's only us, people! <laughs> right? We're not going to get... Really? Well, I don't know. I mean, like, how, how are we going to get it to actual listeners? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we got Matt in the booth. How you doing, Matt? I want to taste that tree. Bring it. Mm, All right. You're going to have to come to us. Whoa. Wow. Wow. All right. That was real rough. It's not like we have a weekly thing that we both attend. We're not going <laughs> to see you until January. It's so true. Yeah. Uh, that's right. This is the last show Drink before, it, the, enjoy before it. the hot. No, we'll bring you a little, little taste, a little taste, a little taste. We're going to distill it because Nastasi was like, that's so hot. Maybe we should make a syrup. And I was like, well, don't you want it to be really, really good? Because the syrup's not going to be as good. Syrup's going to be not as good. You know what I mean? I don't know. What do you think, Stas? Yeah. Nastasi and I have a long history of distilling Christmas, Christmas trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People are like, did you, did you make sure that the tree that you distilled was organic? We're like, come on, man. Come on. Come on. We washed it. No, we didn't, babe. We haven't distilled it yet. Oh, uh, old trees we never washed. We washed that, didn't we? Mm-mm. Eh, it was for MTV. You always told people you did. It was for MTV people. Speaking of uh, people, we have a full studio today. We have, like, so today is, like, the, the Aura King Salmon, right, which is, you know, the famous salmon from New Zealand. We have the team in, uh, along with, with Maisie here, who's a friend of Nastasia's, and also just a, not a publicist for Aura King Salmon, just a, a professional lover of Aura King Salmon. That is correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we have, so I'm Dave. 
if you're listening. We have David, and say hi. Hi. Now, what is your relationship to the Ora King Salmon? So I'm the uh, sales manager for the East region of North America. Now, it's nice to know that they hire, I mean, I mean, whatever, but, like, they don't force, like, a New Zealand person to be the sales rep in North America. They, they have an honest-to-God North American doing it. <laughs> Unless do, you're a right. spy. Right. You can do, like, different accents so perfectly that I can't tell. Well, David Smith would be a perfect spy name, right? Yeah, that's yeah, true. It's true. Be perfect. Be perfect. All right. So, and then uh, over here, I'm going to, I remember them because they have arranged themselves in the Saturday Night Live name order. We have Lauren. Hello. But Lauren, not Lauren. Lauren. Yeah, Lauren. Two syllables. Yeah. And, and uh, what's your relationship to the Aura King? I am David's counterpart, so I am the West Region sales manager. So any kind of question you have over any part of North America, where does it divide? Does it divide at the Mississippi or at the Rockies? Chicago. Chicago, not even to the Mississippi. So wait, who gets Chicago? Chicago. <laughs> um, it has fallen in my territory. Uh, listen, uh, for those of you that aren't from the United States, Chicago ain't in the West. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. It's a bone of a contention. Yeah, I mean, I mean Denver, Western City. Chicago? No. Mm, no, not, not so, so much. much. Yeah. But whatever, you're like, I'll take it. Why, is that where you're based? Is that why that happened? No, I'm based in Sacramento, California. Ooh, Sacktown. But you like Sacramento rap? Um, I don't think, I've, I don't know if I'm so familiar with Sacramento There's a lot of rap. rappers out of Sacramento. Yeah. I know that East Bay has mm. a lot of rappers, but, um, but in terms of how is Chicago in the West region, um, if you look at the U.S. as a whole and think about the amount of consumers that would be using Aura King from basically outside of California in the Midwest, mm-hmm. um, there's not a whole lot in the Midwest. So it made sense to add Chicago to my territory in terms of just big cities. Number of humans who buy salmon. Yeah, it's, it's not so much in Wyoming and North Dakota, South Dakota. Plus, I, I really wanted Texas, so. Oh, uh, that's way. So it's, so it's a crooked. I, it's I, a crooked line. I traded Texas for Chicago. All right. Te- Chicago for Texas. I say. All right. All right. Okay. Lauren mm. also gets Hawaii. Oh. Yeah. Oh, uh, we'll get back to the West Coast in in just just an itty bitty itty bitty minute, right? Because uh, it's going to be an interesting problem with the king salmon in New Zealand and like introduction in the early 1900s, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get into this in a minute. But we also have uh, another uh, Aura King uh, human. We have uh, Michael with us. How are you doing? I am well, thank you. Yeah, so, and what is your relationship to the Aura King? Uh, I'm the vice president of sales for the North America market. So you're the kind of the overlord of salmon for the New Zealand King. Overlord. Overlord. All right. So call in all of your salmon-related questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Let me just say at the very beginning that my older son, Booker, has, since he was a tiny boy, been a fan of Russ and Daughters Appetizing Shop, and which, if you've never been to Russ and Daughters, bring your wallet. Uh, <laughs> like, I love it, but let's just say they know how to charge and they're not afraid to do so. But the quality is top-notch, and by the way, if you've never had, if you've never had uh, salmon cut by an expert, freshly cut by an expert, and you're only, now, if all you can get is, pre, is pre-packaged, pre-cut, I'm not saying that you're, like, you know, a terrible person, right? Because you just don't live where there are Jews. But if you have been to a place where you can go get freshly cut cured salmon and you taste that, you, you really can't go back. 
you really, you really can't go back. And Russ and Daughters, even though, yes, I know it's true, every, you know, most everything everybody gets is from Acme, blah, 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 but, which is a fish curing place uh, here in New York, uh, their product is consistently top-notch, their slicers are top-notch, and they are a slice of New York that you should not miss if you come to New York. Now, the reason I bring this up is that uh, with the exception of some weird little Scottish things and some other, like, you know, little bizarre nuggets of stuff they get in every once in a while, the top shelf of uh, Russ and Daughter's salmon panoply, and by the way, they have more than six types of salmon that you can cut. I just made that up, but it's true. More than six. The top, the very top, it's not called Aura King there. It's called New Zealand King, but I verify that it is, in fact, an Aura King salmon, and this has been my son Booker's favorite since he was a small child. Now, uh, I also, because, you know, who wants to pay that kind of money to feed at the time like a seven-year-old, right? You know, with, like, like a, a, an extremely picky autistic spectrum child, who wants to shovel ridiculously expensive salmon down their throat to the tune of like a half pound at a time, right? Because, I mean, who, who wants to do that? Not me, right? So, you know, uh, it's no offense to the Norwegians, but the Norwegians have a relatively low-fat Atlantic salmon that they farm salmon that they cure, and it's fine, but it's on the cheaper end of the Russ and Daughters salmon list, right? right. Not a bad product. Uh, ain't no New Zealand King, though. So I remember when he was about seven, maybe, seven or eight, I bought uh, New Zealand King, and I bought the Norwegian, and I blinded him on it, and he just... Literally, I was like, what, you know, what do you think of these two salmons? And he just pounded the entire New Zealand king. just ripped through the New Zealand king. So, my, so Booker, from a very early age, has not only loved this product, but consistently been able to choose it in blind taste tests. So after he, by the way, after he did that, I was like, I'll buy it. Okay, fine. You know what I mean? Like, fine. You know, he's the same thing with uh, Fish Row. He loves, he, he loves, uh, you know, Salmon, specifically ikura, he eats that by the half kilo, roughly. Oh, he's going to love you so much. He eats that by the half kilo, so he'll buy a half kilo and then just kind of eat it. Uh, but at Russ and Daughters, he buys the, it's not your product, but he buys the French trout roe, and he's only limited in, by that, by money, because there's only so much I will spend. Nastasia once bought, how much did you buy from for his birthday that time? I don't remember. It was an absurd amount. Yeah. He ate it in one sitting. Like... Nastasi was like, oh, he can get like $50 worth of it or something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And, and so he got the tub of it because I always walk in, I was like, I will buy you exactly $10 worth. And so like Russ and Daughters would sit there with a little scoop and make him his little bit of French trout roe. He walks, he's like, I'll take $50 worth. And then he just <laughs> hoovered it. Anyways, so lover of your product. On a side tangent, which we'll talk about here, and I'm going to let you guys talk about it as soon as I tell you what I'm interested in talking about. Uh, I came to my attention, I don't know, in 2009, 2010, that New Zealand was at the forefront of fish anesthesiology in a product called Aquies, which is an isoeugenol, eugenol-based fish anesthetic. This fish anesthetic, uh, I ran many, many tests on it because uh, I was able to get it on kind of just a, you know, here, play with it, even though it's not technically allowed for use as fish, fi as fish anesthesia for food in the United States. It is, I believe, for moving high-value marine animals around. Uh, and ran test after test of anesthetized fish, fish that were anesthetized before they were slaughtered, 
and consistently across the board, less uh, less gaping in the fillets because the rigor is is, is less hard, uh, firmer flesh throughout because it's just less damaging stuff through rigor. And as a side benefit, the salmon are freaking out less when they're getting you know bled out in the water by the bushel fill. Okay. Right. So uh, I was like, huh, this product is from New Zealand. It can't come into the United States. And then I remember once at a trade show, I went to your booth, and I was like, yo, you guys use the Aquius? And they were like, yes. And I was like, whoa. So I took that as information that this is maybe the only – I know that some people pump gases into the water stream for, uh, an S, you know, let's say calming the fish before they get slaughtered. But at least back then, it was my impression that you are – and you could tell me, the only people that are using this – uh, kind of anesthetic, which is known to me to make a better quality fish for a, a commercially sold product. Is that still true, or was it ever true? It, it, it was true. It is no longer true. Um, all those things you just said, all the benefits are accurate, and we did use it as a uh, anesthesia to, uh, to help with a humane harvest, reduce the stress on the fish. It's, it's based on clove, right? It's a clove essence. So you think about it like if you have a toothache what was the old traditional way that you would deal with the pain on your tooth you'd put clove oil on it yeah, especially if you watch the marathon man and we're really afraid yeah. of nazis yeah, yeah right. <laughs> great movie um so uh yeah so aquias was uh basically kind of taking that uh and applying it in a setting where fish were going through a stressful moment and trying to calm them um, so there was ethical reasons behind it you know being humane harvest, and then there was also qualitative reasons where you get better flesh quality um, through the use of it. And the regulations here in the United States, uh, honestly, were all it, they were never clear. Uh, it was generally regarded as safe, G-R-A-S. Right. As a spice. Uh, I mean, like, usual and isoeugenol were generally regarded as safe for use in foodstuffs. Yeah, right? yeah. The sticky thing was whether or not it was rated as a medicine for fish, right? Wasn't yeah. it just some stupid... That was my impression at the time. Go ahead, sorry. My impression, and this yeah. is, you know, I'm on the sales side, so I'm, I'm not the compliance guy, but my impression was it was all very vague and open-ended, um, and there were no regulations against it. Uh, but a few years ago, we got some pushback um, um, from uh, one of the agencies here, and we're like, well, you know, it's not really clear. We were under the impression this is approved, and there's all these great benefits from it. Uh, there's no harmful benefits that were harmful effects that we're aware of. Uh, but the agency said, no, we just want you to stop using it. You should stop using it. Buttheads. And, and, so, uh, and so we did. Yep. Buttheads. Yep. So listen, uh, so, do we, so and did you stop using it across the board, or do you just stop using it in stuff that you ship to the U.S.? Uh, across the board. Son of a gun, stupid. Yep. Like, so in other words, like something that is clearly better. You were supposed to write the article on it. What article? For the, uh, I wrote a I wrote an extensive blog post yeah, on it. You were supposed to write an article. For who? No, that was on lobsters. Same. It was the same. Same. No, we used Eugenol on lobsters because the Aquias people were like, "You should try it." They don't talk like that because they're from New Zealand. <laughs> you should try it on lobsters. So I was like, "We did, and it worked." You know what I mean? But uh, lobsters, when they get anesthetized, they get all they get wacky. They start walking kind of you know in the wrong direction. They're weird. Anyway, yeah, uh, but. Uh, again, there's a, a benefit to it. Um, the only one that we didn't get a benefit was with eel. It's just because the eel is so bad. When you buy live eel in, like, Chinatown here, at least the places I used to buy live eel in Chinatown, it's just been swimming in its own filth so long. Mm. 
it's just such a filth fish. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I love and I love eel so much. Like eel, eel, good eel. I love good eel, but like filth fish eel, like dirt basket, like you know, re- like recirculated poop eel. Not the money. We you got know? some good eel in New Zealand. I bet you do. I Se- bet you do. Second clearest water in the world. We can pull some eel out of. It's because you guys won't let us bring our ships and nukes over there. I'm just messing with you. Uh, it's true though. You won't. Uh, but so. You know, my grandfather, my late crazy grandfather, uh, who motorhomed around the country and lived in my driveway for three years, uh, in my parents' driveway, really, I, you know, I wasn't paying the mortgage. Uh, he visited Australia and New Zealand one year. I think it was right after my grandma died. And he was like, I love New Zealand. Australia, not so much. They're a bunch of rip-off artists. Agree or disagree? Rip-off of what? I don't know. He wouldn't be more specific. He just did not enjoy the people in Australia, but really liked the people in New Zealand. I have Australian colleagues, so I think it's... I'll just take a pass on that So you agree. (laughs) What I'm getting is that you agree. I've never been to either of them, and, you know, I kind of have equal feelings about Australians and New Zealand. No, no, no. I've been been to both. I've I've lived in New Zealand for a hot second doing hop harvest. New Zealand... Kiwis are amazing, and if you want to go to Australia, just go to L.A. It's the same, and it's closer. Ooh! (laughs) Wow. Ooh! Damn. Sorry. (laughs) Wow. Like, what part of... What part of L.A.? Well, no, uh, Sydney in particular seems a lot like, I mean, well, it has, it has the diversity of places that L.A. contains, too. It's just they're, they're the same city. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Okay, then. So you, you don't have to say it, Michael. We got Matt for you. Just say what you clearly believe by the look on your face. Uh, Devin in the chat has a question about fish. Let's do it, Devin. Uh, Devin was wondering what the what their take on the differences in customer perception of farm fish is in the U.S. versus the rest of the world. Um, uh, he says lots of vitriol against farm fish amongst sports people and environmental types in the U.S., some for good reason, some misguided. Uh, and he's not a fan of writing off all farm fish as bad, as some do. So, yeah, he's wondering about that and a quick summary of Ora King's environmental policy. Thank you. Yeah, so... Um this is David, by the way. Yeah, so so farm fish, yeah, it does have, a lot of people have, um, you know, bad thoughts on it, I, I would say. But I think it just goes back to education. So educating these people about the right uh, farming practices, which we do down in New Zealand. So um, I think if you educate people in the States, um, I think they're more inclined to, uh, you know, go for farmed fish. And then as far as, or as, far as the rest of the world goes, I'm not really sure on their outlook. Um, I know in New Zealand, it's it's really aquaculture is really a, a big, um, big industry, and it's really looked looked upon as a, a good thing. And um, New Zealand's kind of leading the way as far as aquaculture goes. So, yeah, that's. Um, I mean, if we're going to get into it, let's just get into it then. So, I mean, specifically, people get bent about uh, overfeeding and therefore kind of eutrophication of the water underneath the feeding thing, and then also the high amount of inputs to feed a carnivorous fish uh, versus, I don't know, just eating vegetables. I don't know. So, like, like those are the two. Okay. Those are the two things. So let's like, go okay. fight. And you know, and 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 uh, th- there's some other issues too that we'd be happy to talk about. But I think you, the first thing you said was overfeeding. And possible uh, impacts on like the seabed or the uh, fit, uh, immediate environment. So uh, at our farms, uh, we feed uh, our salmon. Um, it's like a spinner that spins out a uh, pellet. And that pellet, I can talk about the components of the pellet later, but that pellet goes into the water. The salmon comes up and they take the feed. 
some of it trickles down, they take the feed, and we have underwater monitors. So uh, and there's a guy in the booth watching the monitor, and the king salmon will feed until they're satiated. And as soon as he sees that they stop taking the feed, the, um, the feed gets cut off. So you don't have anything settling to the bottom. You're not having any buildup um, of feed, excess feed in the water, which also can impact other species. So that's, that's the way we control that aspect and, and don't have an issue with it. Right. And what's, what's like, what, what, what are the pellets made of? So um, it's made out of uh, marine uh, oils and proteins. So these would be pelagic species, sustainable species like anchovy or mackerel or uh, sardine. sardine. Right, because people get bent on the over, like the, like the indiscriminate overfishing of what would be garbage unsaleable fish and turning them into feed for higher value fish. So that's called a FIFO ratio, so fish in, fish out. Right. So the amount of feeder fish you use to produce the same amount of, so one, how many pounds of feeder fish do you need to produce one pound of, of a salmon? So our FIFO ratio is actually 0.8 to 1.2. So we're considered net producers of biomass. So, so, you're, but, so then you must be fluffing it with some kind of veg protein too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, they have, they have to have proteins and oils to live. So if you're reducing your bio, biomass, your marine biomass input, you need to supplement with something, right? So we use land-based oils and proteins. So uh, canola, canola oil could be an input. And do you guys grow that or do you get that from Canada? Uh, I do not know the country of origin. Um, our feed suppliers uh, can be like in Australia. I think our main feed suppliers are in Australia, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, I do know all of our feed components are GMO-free. Um, so uh, canola oil can be one. Uh, there can be soy as a protein base. Um, there can also be some, um, some poultry meal, fit for human consumption, poultry meal. But salmon are omnivores. Um, so that's how we're able to uh, keep in balance our fish-in, fish-out um, ratio um, and also have healthy salmon. This is a, a big issue with a lot of the... Um, NGOs that assess farms on their sustainability. So, like, for example, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has a seafood watch program, and your fish-in, fish-out ratio is a big part of your score. Um, We've been very fortunate that they've come to assess uh, us and the other New Zealand salmon farms, and we did very well. We got their top green uh, best choice rating, Um, and that, that was one of the components. They look at quite a few. They look at how you the environment, the immediate environment, uh, wild species impact. Um, I'd have to look at my notes. There's probably like a, a scorecard of about 10 to 12 different elements that they, they score you on. But we we did well on all of them. We got the, the top rating. And when you go take it away from fish in, fish out to just feed conversion ratio, like how many pounds of feed makes a pound of salmon about? Or is that not something that's monitored the way it is for like chickens? I'm not sure if it's mono. That'd be a, that's yeah, a no, question. it is. Yeah, FC, FCR is a big, a big ratio, but it's also feed is your biggest cost in the industry. It's so you know being able to control that has you know there's sustainability issues, but it's also just sustainable and means like well we need to be a sustainable business. Right. Um, we need to control our our feed costs. So I think we run a, um, about at a one to one ratio in terms of. Um, F- FCR conversion? Well, unless there's a lot of stuff swimming through your nets, it can't be that low, right? Chicken's the lowest in the world, isn't it? Or no? I, mean, I don't know. I'll look it up. So. We'll look it up. I don't think so. I'll look it up later. I don't think any land animal could be lower than a uh, 
an animal that lives below the water. Gravity is the enemy for land animals. Hmm. They, they use a lot of energy to stay upright. Remember, though, a chicken's only alive six weeks. Hmm. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, we kill them real young. Like, how old hmm. is one of these salmons when they get... When they get... Uh, uh, typically about two and a half years. And, that, like, what, about yay? Uh, not quite that big, normally. They'd be somewhere between 10 and 12 pounds, typically. Hmm. I was holding my hands out, as, as one might when they were thinking about fish. Uh, I can't think of fish in pounds. I really think of them in yay. You know what I mean? Like It's, it's about yay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we got a yay one in the box here. Oh, my God. Okay, so listen. Here's some more questions for you. So I already told you that my son Booker uh, can you know pick your product out of a lineup, enjoys it very much. Uh, but you have a whole category of people who were like, the farm salmon doesn't taste the same because it doesn't have the diversity of diet that you get when you're getting a wild salmon? Go. Um, I disagree. I think it's, um, I think our salmon is really, it, I, I prefer it to wild salmon. I think it's cleaner, um, it's got more fat, it's, it's less fishy, if you want to say. So it's, our, you'll try it here in a second. Wait, so you it's, say it's got more fat and is less fishy? Because it seems like it's counter, although it's eating less fish fat, it's eating mm -hmm. you know, relatively neutral fats like canola. Right, right. And, and then, you know, if you want to talk about, while you're, while you're answering, if you want to talk about the relative uh, importance of the feed to the flavor of the animal, I mean, go ahead. Mm -hmm. um, well, I was just going to follow up on David's comment about wild versus um, farm um, profiles. So it, it, first of all, you have to make sure, you're, if you're going to really compare, compare the same species, right? Mm -hmm. So we raise king salmon. Which, you know, comes by its name honestly, am I right? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you'd have to, you know, compare it to a wild king, right? So uh, wild fish, um, you know, have a, uh, if, if you have a, if you look at like a normal distribution of flavor, you get a lot of range, right? You have... And you can have the most beautiful, perfect, wonderful wild king salmon in flavor. You can also get one that was caught late in the season. It's making its way up river. It's starting to get a little beat up as it's going up to spawn and breaking down. And that one's gonna not taste so great. It might be a little muddy. It might be a little dirty. Flesh might be a little, uh, little soft. But the stuff that would ordinarily get canned. It just well, it was later. It was just caught later. late in the season. You know, yeah. um, it. You know, it's, not, it's just it's just different. You get a, a wider spectrum of flavors if you're eating a, a wild king. Uh, but a, a great wild king is, is awesome and it's beautiful and it tastes great uh, and I love it. Um, with a farm king like we do, it's a tighter distribution, right? So uh, each fish is going to taste more like the other one. You won't get as much uh, on the Variance. on the um, extremes. But uh, but without doubt, our fish has more fat. So we've bred them that way um, and we've raised them that way. We have about a 25 percent fat to lean ratio, which a typical wild king will be somewhere between 12 to 15. So that's a pretty pretty big difference. In, uh, and fat, king, king fat is content. one of the fattier of the yeah. salmon breeds anyway. Right. Yeah. Right? So it is the fattiest. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Nobody likes a dry salmon. Am I right about this? Uh, I, I'm with you. Yeah. You know, nobody enjoys it. Yeah. I don't think so. Well, that's yeah. what's, it's, it's, so it's really hard to dry this one out. It's all that fat. Like we call well, this please don't overcook it just because he said that, please, please. We call this the wagyu of salmon. I mean, it's it really does have that like luxurious quality to it. But like in a hot smoke application, therefore, right? So a hot smoked salmon, the taste. Everyone likes the taste of hot smoked salmon. But let's be honest, it's like you know, so dry, so dry. You know what I mean? Like, so you're saying that this is good hot smoke application salmon? This is the best 
hot smoke application salmon, in my, my opinion. And do you think, going back to what you said before, because uh, when you said that the feed that you give them is partially marine-based um, oils, which, you know, let's be honest, fish oil is fish oil, you know what I mean? And uh, taste-wise, uh, that the fact that you are feeding, you know, hopefully deodorized and not rancid, terrible canola oil. Does any of you guys old enough to remember how crappy canola oil used to taste? It was so garbage. I... I, people be like, it's healthy. And I'm like, it's garbage. But like now it's completely deodorized. It's fine. I can use it. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I don't know whether or not that transfers through. But do you find that by using plant-based oils in addition to the fish oils that you get a milder taste on the fat so you can have something that's less kind of overtly fishy but still have that unctuous fattiness? Or does it not play a, a role? It's a good question. And I don't know if we really have the detailed research and data to answer that. This is a project of ours to develop very complex sensory analysis on our fish, which I think would, you know, we'd be one of the first in the industry to do that, where we do, you know, objective, quantifiable uh, sensory analysis at some institution that does this all the time, whether it's for coffee or wine or, or whatever food product, um, and really drill into, like, the specific flavor profiles, what could be driving the, the variables in each element, um, and really get much, much, much pre precise on that. But it is a fairly new industry, and uh, we're not quite there yet. Right. So, but, well, you need but we money wanna, behind those. Like, in other words, there needs to be a... We want to get there. Yeah, there needs to be a money... There needs to be money behind the potential answer to the question mm -hmm. in order to answer any question that has to do with taste. You know well, what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, going back to that, I know um, when we did use that Aquias... To, uh, that did leave a bit of a flavor. Like you could pick up some of the clove. If someone told you about it. When I was running tests, right. if I told you I used clove oil, you'd pick it. Okay. A little bit. But like also, I mean, like, I mean, you remember you were doing the taste test. It's like, it also depends on the dose rate of that stuff. This stuff is incredibly, right. it smells like cloves. Mm -hmm. And then you're dosing it at a certain rate per gallon. Presumably, you guys in a in a in a flow through tank because you were also then bleeding them out, right? I mean, like they were dosed in tank. You, I don't know how it works, but I guess you put them in a pen, and then the, you keep the water running and you bleed. How, how does it so, work exactly? Well, when we were using it, it was a little different. So we 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 harvest at on site at the farm. Um, so we uh, would corral them in, in nets, get them into smaller groups. Smaller groups mean less stress. Get them into smaller groups and then uh, put some aquas in the water at the recommended dosage they would get kind of like calm and a little bit a little bit sleepy and then uh and then you would gather them up in a in a basket and then they would go through this um kind of a, a ramp where you would get them to kind of like make their they would start to like swim up this little ramp they'd get to the top where there was a percussive stunner and a, and a bleeder so first the percussive stunner knocks them out so that at that point they're out cold they're not going to feel anything right because you don't want that lactic acid release. Right. That's really critical. So that's your equivalent of the brain kill of the of like an ikijimi spike, but yes, right. yeah, exactly. It's like it's a ikijimi like concept. Yeah, right. uh, and then you would cut it, cut it, and go bleed start it. Start start the bleed out. Yeah. Goes in a nice slurry. Heart's still pumping and uh, it continues to bleed out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sorry, people. That's what happens when you eat a fish. Right. Got to bleed out. And that that like. To me, like stress at kill is one of the primary drivers that has not been adequately addressed commercially in terms of, and one of the problems with wild caught, frankly, fish is that they, 
is it even if the taste is fantastic because they've been eating whatever but like but seriously the stress at kill mm -hmm. for a wild fish can be enough that's why a lot of wild farm stuff you see a wild uh, fi caught fish you see you have a lot of uh, you know gaping problems in the fillets because of the intensely hard rigor they go through because of the huge amount of lactic acid buildup and loss of ATP during the capture process. Right. Um, we, we work with a uh, company in New Zealand that does wild catch called Lee Fisheries, and they have really built their company on how they catch and harvest the fish. They ikajime every fish they catch, and their quality is outstanding. Yeah, yeah I mean, look, proper kill method is, like I say, the problem in the U.S. is that there's no way if you're going if you're selling to a chef and you're selling like a large quantity and you're like the fish purveyor, you can sell on stuff like that. But at a market to like an at to a person, like how are you going to just you can't justify to someone unless you build a name around it. Like Aura Kings built you know built a name around itself, but you know how do you get someone to pay that extra three? you know, three, four dollars a pound if they don't even know what the heck you're talking about. And that's why when I used to do the Ikijime demos at the school, you know, people were like, well, are, are you trying to get people to, you know, go Ikijime their own fish? I'm like, well, not really, because, you know, to buy live fish to get brought into your restaurant is fantastically expensive. So unless you culturally need to do it, plus that that fish is living in stress in one of these circular tanks at the holding place for however long. And so, you know, you know, really it's just you know, in those demos, I was testing fish held in a tank killed without Ikijime versus fish killed with Ikijime held in the tank. So the variables were the same across it, but I wasn't really advocating that people necessarily do it in their restaurants. I was more like, more people should know that this is something to do so that they will ask their fishmongers and pay more for it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I think that's the answer mm -hmm. to it. Hey, hey Dave, yeah. so we have a caller on the air. It is not a fish question, but uh, it's like holiday related, I think. It has some level of urgency. You want you want to take that or no? Urgency, I like that. Like someone needs to use the restroom. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Hello, hey, caller. Dave. How you doing? I'll turn it into a fish question, Good. by the way. What do we got? All right, awesome. It's Yehuda from D.C. Um, it's, uh, feel free to turn this one into a fish question. It's actually about, uh, I wanted to see if you could talk about uh, food trucks a little bit. Mm. Um, getting one designed and equipped, um, it's more like a, you know, like a, a trailer, food trailer. Um, and uh, just to get your thoughts on like, you know, if you were doing it, what, what were some things that, you know, you would say are of uh, utmost importance, things to watch out for, yeah, well, uh, if you have any knowledge on it at si all. Since Nastasia uh, has actually done this. I've done it. Dave has not done this. Right, Nastasia, right, so what do, you, what do you, I, what do you have to say? I remember. Don't do it. It's <laughs> awful. It's, it's horrible. There's, like, we're, there's permits, there's water tank problems, there's BTU problems, there's... God. Well, what you, she was doing pasta, so she needed like she needed need fundamentally like high BTUs, of, yeah. right? Because mm -hmm. you were fry. But did you have a gas-based fryer or electric fryer? We weren't frying. We were just boiling water. You didn't use fryers to boil mm -hmm. the water. No, you had specific pasta boilers, mm -hmm. but they were like fryers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It yes. took a lot. Yeah. yeah. But and then the tank. Were the they water gas tank, or electric gas? gas? But the water tank can only hold so much. Then you got to go dump it in like a specific sewer area that is made for food trucks that could be like you know. Miles and miles right, so, away, so and I used a trailer, a, not a food truck. Okay, so right, we have a facility already with all that stuff equipped. Like the issue of where where it's going to be and how it's going to be cleaned and stationed and all that is less of a problem for us. Um, 
and uh, it, it's kind of like an offshoot of an existing catering business. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the infrastructure problems that surround people are just starting like straight with a food truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trying to get around. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what's your question? She still hates it. You're not going to get. <laughs> I don't understand. You're that. not going to get. Not, I'm not going to be like, oh, that's great. Like, <laughs> yeah, so, but like, for, for, from a power standpoint, that was a good point to bring up. Like the 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 ones that I'm seeing now, we're looking at an 18 foot trailer, and it comes with like a hundred amp uh, box for the electrical stuff, two hundred pound propane tanks. But I, I don't know as far as like power requirements, what that is going to satisfy. Uh, you know, like how crazy we can get with that. Is that, that. Support, right, so, like, so for propane specifically, you need to look at your entire gas consumption over like all of the hotline stuff that you have in there. And all of that stuff for propane is rated, typi- unfortunately, typically in BTUs per hour. So then, and I forget what the numbers are. I, I used to have it at the, at the tip of my fingers because, you know, Nastasia and I have worked with torches quite a bit, which are done in BTUs per hour. It's a relatively easy conversion to convert pounds of propane per hour into BTUs per hour. And then you can determine how many hours of burn time you get out of your tanks. Now, the caveat is, is that you said you had 100-pound tanks. I hope you're not going over any bridges no, or, or through any tunnels because yeah. uh, that's a huge nightmare, even with 20-pound camper-style tanks. But I will caution you against using anything smaller than the 100-pound tanks because as you vaporize propane, it gets colder through evaporative cooling. And a 20-pound tank, even through a regular, like, you know, uh, like a regular, my regular fryer, which I think is about 60,000 BTUs or something. No, it's more. It's like 100,000. Anyway, my, my, a standard fryer, I forget how many thousand BTUs it is. It's, is it 90? I, I got to look it up. It's been a long time since I had to know all this. But it would chill my 20-pound tanks down to the point that um, they would no longer deliver propane adequately to supply the fryers. And so I needed to wrap a heat blanket around my propane tanks to, to get them to go. Now, if you're doing something um, with a 100-pound tank, a 100-pound tank should be especially – DC, which is a sweltering hellhole. Just kidding. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it should maybe be warm enough to be able to. A hundred pound tank should be warm enough to not get too cold as it's delivering the propane. You shouldn't require a heat blanket for that. Whereas if you attempted to run them off smaller tanks, well, you would definitely need a heat blanket. What are you cooking? Uh, trying to keep it, you know, versatile. So it's not like going to be any one concept. <laughs> be you know, catering for different events and um, a rotating menu. So I was I was thinking of like. Getting a small combi in there, two fryers, uh, a griddle, and a stove. A, co- uh, a combi is with like a-, a combi is the biggest hog of energy in the entire planet. Like, if you actually need a combi, you could try to put a combi in there. But seriously, consider getting a CVAP, which has a much lower energy input. Like, energy right. is going to be your nightmare if you're like pumping the like the energy management is going to be your nightmare. You know what I'm saying? Uh, mm-hmm. Even when it's gas related like a combi even a gas fired combi uses more uh in its convection stuff uses more electricity than you would probably think about and the electricity is going to have to be provided from a generator that generator is going to need right. to be running all the time so you need to get one of those really nice quiet rv oh, yeah, generators no quiet generator well, this is why people don't like when, when you're camping you they just, don't like camping next to the rv section cut fish you should just do you should just do cured Aura king salmon <laughs> Mm-hmm. There, you there we go. go. There we go. We bring it back around. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, we, got, we got a whole how to how to do that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, you do. So, well, I have a curing question. All right. 
we'll think more about it. And like Nastasia is never like I will never be able to give you any in depth stuff on this. I have never personally done the food truck. Maybe someone in the chat room has it, but Nastasia is so vehemently against it. Also, it's remember up there with Kickstarter. Yeah. Also, she did she did a Kickstarter in conjunction with a truck. No, no, no. I'm saying the equal level of hatred. Oh, yes. and, but she was also serving gluten free pasta through a Kickstarter thing in a truck to college students. These are all things that she hates. Every single aspect of this is something that she hates. Uh, and so, you know, as she is my co-host, I can't really, you know, I'm not going to, because I'll pay, if I say anything positive, I'll pay for it later. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, she has, and by the way, you know, Nastasia, like, you got to love it. She, once she says, I hate this, it doesn't matter. Someone could be like, I'll hand you a giant brick of cash. You just got to stand in a food truck for one more day and serve gluten-free pasta to college students. She's like, no. (laughs) And they're like, a a giant brick of cash. Like, you need a forklift for the cash. She's like, no. Like, that's just the way she is. Maisie, you know. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly how she is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. So, wait. Something I was uh, thinking about as you were going back to Salmon. Uh, something I was thinking about uh, as you were talking. Um, everyone's worried about uh, – well, another thing people worried about eating um, carnivorous fish in general is bioaccumulation. But since you're at like a fish in, fish out of negative, presumably that means that – you guys aren't a bioaccumulate. Like, in other words, your fish is not a bioaccumulation, so you're not going to have any Jeremy Piven, it was the sushi that made me do it. I got mercury poisoning from all the sushi. Remember that? He doesn't talk like that. But you don't remember that? Yeah, so, like, have you ever, like, done any of these uh, kind of, like, 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 is that part of your marketing that's not, like, a, like a highly bio, a bioaccumulative uh, fish? I'm not that familiar with that concept so uh well people don't eat because look look, it takes like eight billion pounds of small fish to make a tuna right right and so you know all of that stuff has like whatever mercury was in it from the fact that we polluted the universe world i guess not the universe yet portions of it and then uh so but all that mercury stays in the tuna which is why when someone says by the way i hope you know this people when you buy something that says mercury free tuna what is actually happening is they are just harvesting tuna that are small and they are making the ocean devoid of small tuna before they can grow large because the only way to get a mercury-free wild tuna is to kill it when it's young before it has eaten a lot of fish. FYI. Um, but the when we go back to that because there's – on farm tuna is another interesting thing because with the exception of kindai, which I don't even know if they're still around, nobody does closed cycle farming on tuna unless maybe you – know, it's been years since I've looked at it. You guys are completely closed cycle. You're raising your own fish, right? Right. Now, another problem people have with farmed uh, fish, especially in places where the fish is not from, is uh, that no closed system is truly closed, escapes, blah, 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 blah. But king salmon has been um, – naturalized in New Zealand since at least the early 1900s. And so you have actual, like, king salmon chilling in New Zealand, right? Mm -hmm. So you guys aren't that worried about escape. Like, because I know in that part of the world, everyone's worried about escape of, you know, cane toads and other horrible... I mean, not New Zealand, right? You guys don't have any horrible invasive stuff in New Zealand, do you? Except people? Just People, people yeah. Yeah. They're, they're very, very strict on biosecurity in New Zealand, so it's, I mean, I don't, I, like, you can't bring in a, you can't even have a snake as a pet in New Zealand. 
snakes. Listen. Like zoos aren't even allowed to have snakes. I'm not saying that you know that you shouldn't have a, a snake as a pet because people do enjoy walking around the city with snakes around their necks, like you know, big kind of I don't know, like like it's kind of like a nice ornament, in the way that like uh, Gunter Gable Williams, the famous uh, lion tamer, used to wear the lion around or the whatever that little tigerette thing was around his uh, live, not a not a coat, uh, around his uh, shoulders, but. Uh, there's one thing that snakes don't is care about whether you're alive or dead. And in general, like, I like a pet that kind of cares whether you you personally are alive or dead. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so, you know, that's my feeling on snakes. Like, you know, you, you, I'm not anti-snake. Like, I actually, I like the feeling of a snake. Like, a snake, like, it feels nice. It's got that kind of, it's drier than you'd think, like, mm-hmm. holding a snake. But... Snake's never like, hey, how are you? When you show up, it's not even like, it doesn't even ignore you in a fun way like a cat. You know what I mean? Like a cat at least is like, you know, actively, yeah. A cat is like, it knows you're there. It might not be happy you're there, but it knows you're there. Snake's just like, like doesn't exhibit play. You know what I mean? Like at least, you know, when a cat like catches a mouse, you can see the vicious nature of the cat as it like tries to, it like lets the mouse get like a foot away from it before it smacks it back down again. Cats clearly play. Snake doesn't play. Snake with a mouse is just like, and that's it. Game over. Game over. You know, mouse and snake, gone, you know. Uh, so snakes as pets, not that interesting. They don't even chew. They, no, they don't even chew. No. Who wants to deal with something that doesn't even chew? I mean, I don't really chew. That's why Nastasi doesn't like dealing with me. I'm no. kind of the snake of yes, people. I unhinge my jaw and then the, and then the food goes <laughs> yeah. in. That's probably why they never made a cartoon about a snake, did they? Uh, did they make a cartoon about snakes? Well, there's, uh, yeah, in, uh, so... The in, Jungle Book. Ricky Tikitavi is full of bad snakes, obviously, because he's a mongoose and he kills snakes. Uh, yeah, in the Jungle Book, uh, what's his name? Ka, what's his, Ka is the snake's name? But I mean, as, as like a lead character in Looney Tunes, like, you know, there's ducks and there's cats and there's birds. There's a... Dogs. There's a, snakes are no fun. There's a bad guy snakes snake no gu- guitar... No, what does he play? In the Riverbottom Nightmare Band, I believe there is a snake in Emmett Otter's Chug Band Christmas, which is one of my favorite Christmas things. Is there a snake? There's a lizard, and there's a fish. There might not be a snake. The snakes play dead. That's not playing. Well, that's not a game. <laughs> that, that, that's a survival strategy. I'm looking. I'm looking. Are you Googling? Nastasi is like, Nastasi like playing dead. She's just <laughs> like, it's just like banana grams. Can you teach her like a snake? Baby trip. plays with python. Baby human <laughs> plays with python. <laughs> <laughs> it's the good parenting website. <laughs> yeah, wow. Oh my god. All right, so listen, we have a we have a, a question on fish here. We go. So, uh in actuality, Patrick West wrote in about how to make a uh, hot sauce because he's he he takes jalapenos are his favorite, which fine, you get to choose what you like because it's your sauce, right? And he uh, puts them in vinegar and, and then uh, bottles them, but the, and then uh, blends them and then bottles them. I would recommend if you can, before you vinegarize them, salt them down and let them do a little lacto ferment first because I really like that flavor. But then, yeah, sure, vinegar it up and bottle it, at which point it should be fairly stable. I don't think you're going to get a lot of like explosive action after you hit it with the vinegar because the acid, I think, will be high enough to stop a lot of uh, gas. But your problem was the sauce was too thin. And the thickener of uh, record in most hot sauces like this, and by that I mean sriracha, is xanthan gum. And xanthan gum has the benefit that as long as there's no microbes will eat xanthan. But if you have a high enough salt 
and a high enough uh, acid ratio. None of that stuff that will eat the xanthan is going to be there, and so it'll be relatively stable for a, a long time. Xanthan's just stuff. Don't add too much because it'll turn snotty. If you just, you can add a little bit of xanthan and also a little guar or LBG. Be careful with guar. A lot of it tastes nasty, so... Uh, but I wouldn't even need to. The problem with LBG is you need to heat it uh, uh, quite a bit. Guar you don't, but most of it doesn't taste so good unless you get flavor-free uh, guar from TSE gums. But just try a little bit of xanthan. Please don't add a boat ton of xanthan. Use like under a quarter of a percent to start, one quarter of one percent uh, to start, and let it sit for like overnight until you assess the final, uh, not meat overnight, I'm just doing that to be, you know, safe, uh, to assess the final thickness before you start adding more and more uh, xanthan gum to it. And also realize that if you don't work with hydrocolloids a lot, doubling the amount that you add much more than doubles the thickness of the product. So moving, if you're like quarter of a percent is not enough, don't immediately go to like half a percent or one percent. Just go up like in smaller increments because the effects are more than additive. But the question you had about salmon was, side note, oh, side note, he just got the okay to purchase a, a Searsol, uh, and we'll be enjoying it over the holidays. Who did he get the okay from? His wife. Oh, yes, God. Nastasia has, Nastasia, uh, <laughs> yeah, you didn't read it from the missus. Come on, Dave. Because you Accept have, our audience. You have demented gender ideas, Nastasia. Our audience are a group of beta males who Nastasia, I thought we were done talking we about beta we males. We haven't done this in a little while. We this is great. Yeah. Who enjoy By the way, this salmon is delicious. <laughs> Are you stopping? <laughs> they self-proclaimed. Isn't that the one? It didn't say beta. Just said oh, that. Oh, it's the next guy. No, whatever. Anyway, so uh, it also says hello to Matt in the booth. Uh, ideas on growing m- mushrooms. I don't have any info on growing mushrooms unless you guys. Are you guys mushroom growers? Forager. Forager, but not. He wants to grow morels. I don't know anything about that. Uh, but Paul Stamets is the guy to look at his books. Uh, what do you... I was just going to say, I've, I've grown like oyster mushrooms and shiitake, but never morel. I cooked a bunch of oyster mushrooms yesterday. Oh, how yeah. were they? Uh, delicious, actually. Nice. I had the, you know, the, one, of the mini, one of those mini thinner choy varieties, mm-hmm. like something choy. I don't know which choy because it's not written in English where I was. And uh, yeah, I steamed them. And then I had, uh, I had uh, sauteed the uh, oyster mushrooms uh, down. And then a little bit of fermented chili sauce, sesame oil, garlic. I had a little bit of sugar just to kind of mm-hmm. rub it out. Salt, pepper, check, check, check. Good, good. As a side dish, because my son, the one who loves this so much, your product so much, he's like, I want fish ball soup. I was like, nah, that's easy. He also loves fish balls. Yeah. He doesn't eat red meat anymore, except for he's like, I really like Fukunese fish balls, even though they have pork in the middle. So I will consider the pork in the middle of a Fukunese fish ball to be fish. <laughs> he's got an interesting palate. Yeah. I mean, for those of you that don't know, fish balls are kind of like traditional surimi-style products where you need the fish paste so much that they turn into kind of ping-pong balls. The, mm-hmm. the natural transglutaminase inside of the fish causes a hard... I think it actually is natural transglutaminase. And plus just the action of salt and like protein manipulation. Maybe it's the recent ones that they actually add transglutaminase to, and that's what I'm thinking of. Anyway, it forms a very strong bond, and so you get very springy fish balls. It's almost of, like doughy. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you, you, you boil them like dumplings, and they're like mm-hmm. kind of fish dumplings. And so uh, Booker loves these things. And, but in, in, in the Fukunese style of fish ball has inside of it ground seasoned pork. 
And it's, so it, it, that kind of fishball is specific to, uh, like, it's Fukunese. And it turns out that where I live is, to, where Anastasia and I used to have our office, is, like, the, the East Coast epicenter of Fukunese fishball uh, manufacturers. So there are, like, eight different Fukunese fishball joints in, in the neighborhood. Anyway. Uh, but... Uh, Patrick writes in and says, uh, I would like to do DIY cold cured salmon. Decent lox is just too damned expensive in Michigan. So this is your problem, Lauren. It's on you. No, no it's on him. Wait, Michigan? Chicago. Chicago, Michigan. No, she's west. That remember? Uh, I guess it depends on where. Uh, Michigan. No, she does Michigan. Michigan, too. Lauren. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Lauren. Got to get that price down in Michigan. Anyway, hold on a second. And you can say where to get it. Decent lox is just too damn expensive in Michigan. But I have lakes full of salmon, trout, and whitefish. So you, well, you said you had a good recipe for curing. Do it. Do it. Oh, I, I was being facetious. Oh. But Lauren, you could probably talk about uh, curing. Um, let's see. I find the Aura King, it holds really well to curing and cold smoking, especially because of the high fat content. Um, but to avoid really masking the flavor and to let the fish be the prevalent flavor. Uh, just a simple salt-sugar cure is really the best mm -hmm. thing. I mean, you can get fancy and do it with some dill or add some gin, but really just a simple salt-sugar cure is the best approach for this fish. Yeah, the liquor, like, maybe a little, but it's going to change the, the... It does that weird surface coloring thing. Right. Do you, uh, are you guys two-to-one salt-sugar? Is that, Are you a two-to-one people? Yeah, yeah. I, I am. So. Yeah. 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 Uh, I wish Nils was here. Nils, Nils is my, you know, Nastasia and I used to work with the French culinary, like, and when he lived in Sweden, would, like, do nothing but cure salmon all day long. So he has his, you know, he has his, uh, you know, his salmon cure. I should have texted him before I came. Anyway. Uh, so one more question, uh, Lauren, about uh, selling in the West and uh, salmon. Oh, also, cold cured, I'm assuming you don't mean cold smoke. Cold smoke, if you're going to cold smoke a fish, first you need to build a cold smoker. And uh, the second thing you're going to need to do, in the U.S. anyway, I mean, it really depends. If it's actually cold, like actually, actually cold, like refrigerator cold, then you're not going to have to worry about botulism growth. But if you aren't, like I would worry about it, and then you'd probably have to use in your cure, you'd have to use some nitrites to um, inhibit any kind of uh, botulism growth. But anyway, just have to add that. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's it like selling uh, foreign salmon to people in Oregon? Ah, so, yeah. Well, kind of going back full circle to your original question about essentially what people think of farm salmon, I think that comes down to if your area has a natural salmon run or not. So the Pacific Northwest has traditionally been a really difficult sell because, I mean, that's like the epicenter for wild king um, here on the west, or excuse me, on the west coast, and who wants to buy a Pacific king salmon from New Zealand when you have natural run in your backyard? So originally it was a pretty hard sale, but um, as we've been able to educate our customer base and they see that we have like green rating from Monterey Bay Aquarium and that we actually have really great farming practices, it's not such that like redheaded stepchild um, because I think people are starting to learn that we will need farms in order to feed the growing population of this planet. What do you think the genesis of the redheaded stepchild phrase is? I was thinking about that too. I knew is it that they are, is it that, that you, is it that as 
as as it says in the Game of Thrones, dark of hair, dark of hair, dark of hair, and this one has red hair, or is it an anti-ginger thing? You think? I'm gonna go out on a limb and say anti-ginger. Mm, all right. It's also not your child. Right. Right. It's step- well, it's it's one of the two parents' child. Yeah. Anyway, I'm always curious. Like I, I didn't mean to jump in, but it's just whenever that phrase comes up, I'm like, redheaded stepchild. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's one of those no one knows what it means, but everyone knows what it means. Yeah. Also, whenever someone says it, the song Love Child goes through my head. Diana Ross? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it going through your head now? Yes. Yeah. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, what? Why? I just don't have it in me. You're going to have to pay a lot of money. Always second best, Matt. Different from the freaking rest. All right, listen. Uh, you don't have... It's one. What? It's one. So we're still talking about... Hold on. I gotta, this is our last show before the... Hold on one second. Oh, and a uh, listener wanted to know about the existing conditions, buyout, New Year's Eve, whatever. It's whatever. on! Do it! Go! Wait, how do It's they, live! Where do they buy tickets? Go to the existing conditions uh, Instagram, and it should say, I think it's like, it's, you know, it's it's from 9 till 1, and there's going to be a lot of champagne. We're getting uh, we're getting Charles Heidsack. Now, that's Chucky Heidsack. Not, not like, you know, not his brother, Piper, or sister, Piper. Charles Heidsack. We're getting some Magnums. So they have this rosé champagne that is vintage that they specifically de-vintaged so they could sell it at like kind of a nice price point only to restaurants. And we have a bunch of cases of the... Because the guy came to taste us out on it. And he's like, yeah, I brought these different champagnes. I was like, you got the pank? I need pank. And then he's like, of course I brought you pank. And so like we're drinking... Nastasia also loves the pank. Maisie, what do you think about pink champagne? You like the pink? <laughs> I like all champagnes. Uh, that's a good answer. It's a smart answer. Uh, so yeah, so do that. We're gonna be sabering. We're gonna be, you know, doing all kind of all kind of fun stuff at the existing conditions on the New Year's. I'll be there. Don will be there. Uh, my wife Jen. So if you go, uh, for those of you that actually, because Jen has never she been has on the to radio come on show. The show. Yeah, but when's she gonna? Do? She's like, how am I gonna go on the show? I work for a living. She doesn't talk like that, but that's basically what she says. And then uh, we could get her on sometime said that for years. Okay, why don't you since why don't you do it? Why don't you ask her? She'll listen to you. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, so, uh, do you remember um, Brain Surgeon Jay? So, Brain Surgeon Jay actually just got back from New Zealand and Australia and brought some stuff, went to New Zealand first, then went to Australia and the Australians brought out the dogs and like like threw away all like a lot of the food stuff that he, that oh, he had yeah. purchased in the, in the New Zealand. So he had to go back to New Zealand before he came out. To- uh, no, yeah, right. So then everything got thrown away. So you get nothing. You get nothing. Which is why, if you're gonna do it, like I think that the the power move is to buy your stuff and then ship it directly back to the states. Like as long as you're buying stuff that is legal, because mm-hmm. as uh, you know, Dave Carp, the uh, fruit guy, says, don't bring stuff to uh, a country where it doesn't belong because you really can mess up billions of dollars worth of agriculture and, you know, or like wipe out, you know, our most important trees for no good reason just by being an a-hole about it. But if it is legal to bring back, just ship it rather than trying to bring it from one country that has very strict rules to another. And by the way, I mean, if any country has a right to be kind of snippety about, uh, snippety about their, you know, problems with biological imports, Australia kind of, they get that. You know what I mean? Like rabbits. Ooh, I'm not even going to have time to talk about rabbits today. Son of a gun. I have the best classics in the field here. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Uh, so, hold on. Uh, but anyway, so uh, 
Jay writes in a bunch of stuff, which I'm not going to have time to, but I will say this. One thing I forgot. So remember, if those of you don't remember, uh, Jay is building a new kitchen, brain surgeon, so I told him to make sure that he didn't mess up his hands and he has you know, plenty of safety for his hands because, you know, that's his livelihood. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention to you, Jay, is uh, sockets, 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 power, right? So the classic mistake, and architects won't understand you and contractors certainly will not understand you, but you, when you have your countertop... You're going to want a lot of sockets, quad, quad, GFI, quad sockets along your countertop. But if let's say you have three socket, three quad sockets going across your countertop, each one of those sockets should be a separate circuit. Listen to me, Jay. Separate circuit. This way, you can run a toaster oven off of one and an induction uh, uh, burner off of another and then something like a blender or a Vitaprep off the third and you're not going to blow all of the circuits. If, like me, you have your microwave, which, by the way, suck it. Buy a microwave, people. It is useful. Don't be that person who doesn't have a microwave in your house. It's you, David? Mm-hmm. They're good. I don't have a dishwasher either. Uh, well, come on. Then. Go dishwasher first. More important. I stack my toaster oven on top. Uh, one or the other. I forget. I think the microwave is stacked on top of the toaster oven because, you know, they fit under the counter, blah, blah, blah. But then you run the power cord down from the mic or the nuke over to the other socket so that you can run the toaster oven and the microwave at the same time because nobody, nobody likes to do appliance juggling where you're like, oh, I hit that! Don't turn on the rice cooker! I'm also toasting! Don't! It's funny you say, my, my rice cooker blew a circuit in my house last weekend. Well, was it like, some, what else was on the circuit? Uh, my blender. See? Yeah. See, Jay? You're a brain surgeon. You have the money. Get different circuits. Run to your uh, to your quads. Now, it is acceptable uh, on a 15, not, I mean, maybe not by code, but by m- me, to run LED lighting off of it and also some power equipment because your LED light really is so low that you're not really worried about it. So as long as you are fully LED light, which you should be, and by the way, good lighting in your kitchen, also a freaking must. But you can do like I used to do, and if your kitchen is uh, right next to your living space, you can... Put some barn doors on your lights so that the light just drops like a freaking stone. As soon as you leave the kitchen, it goes into kind of like design-friendly, architecture-friendly lighting. But in your kitchen, it should be bright as mm, – because it is, you know – Bright as an operating room. There you go. Oh, I like this. Anyway, all right. Uh, Anonymous writes in. Maybe you guys have expertise in this, you know, uh, especially maybe the West Coast uh, contingent. I don't even know what the rules are in New Zealand on this. Anonymous writes in about weed. Uh, I'm hoping Dave could do a scientific treatment of a topic mired in pseudoscience, decarbing, so uh, taking the carboxyl units off of uh, THC, whatever it is, eh, turning it into the one that can get you all, uh, you know, that has less psychoactive. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are all sorts of anecdotal methods floating around, but it's fundamentally a cooking chemistry question that I've never been able to find a serious resource on. My general understanding is the psychoactive compounds in marijuana need to have a carboxyl group cleaved off to become psychoactive. This is no problem when smoking, but oral consumption required... Or a king consumption. Uh, oral <laughs> consumption requires a pre-treatment usually referred to as decarbing. Recommended procedures vary widely, but generally average out to something along the lines of baking in a 250 to 300 degree oven for about 10 to 30 minutes, depending on source. Uh, and a lot of this is based on this uh, graph that was done in the early 90s. But from all I can read, uh, the kind of graph is garbage. I would do research 
uh, on uh, pressure cooker usage. I would use, pressure cooker can maintain a pretty clean uh, 254 to 59, depending on which one you have, degree Fahrenheit uh, environment, and you can seal the the weed inside of a glass jar. I would probably do it to get good transfer in the presence of oil if you're going to cook with it anyway, but I'm not an expert because I actually don't consume any of that stuff, but I, that's the route I would go for a way that you could actually control temperature at home in an easy way uh, because you can. An oven, you have evaporative cooling. There's no way, like as long as the, the weed still has moisture in it, you're never actually going to get the temperature up beyond 212, and then as soon as the moisture is gone and you start going to those higher temperatures, you're going to get toasting, browning, off flavors, and kind of loss of volatiles a sealed system, I think you're going to be much better. But like, you know, go look that up on the internet. This episode is brought to you by you. Heritage Radio Network makes your favorite food podcasts. And now we need you to lend your voice to our community and show your support of food radio. Become a member today. HRN releases 35 weekly shows each week and is a globally respected voice in food media. But Believe it or not, we're still a very small grassroots organization. HRN is powered by a small but mighty staff of four people and HRN's incredible hosts who volunteer their time to bring you the best food podcasts out there. Our hosts are experts in their field, whether it's food writing, mixology, culinary history, craft beer, LGBTQ issues, and so much more. And they're committed to making sure that the stories that matter to you keep coming each week. We believe that a thoughtful, committed group can change the world. So join us. Add your voice and support HRN by making a donation of any amount. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate. Josh wrote in about doing a standing rib roast via Chef Steps. I wasn't able to look at their standing rib roast recipe. Your question was Chef Steps was doing a three rib roast, which is uh, five to six inches uh, at six hours for 58C, and you plan on cooking a four rib roast. Uh, now, the problem is, is that I don't have a picture in my head of which six inches you're talking about and kind of how big across the rib roast is. It, in my mind, like a five to six inch rib roast can be modeled roughly as a cube or a sphere. It's not longer than it is wide. So um, it means that it'll cook relatively faster. I don't think you're going to double your time because you're not like... So if you double the size of the sphere that you were sphere that you were cooking, you would multiply the cooking time by four. Got that? You double the width, you multiply by four because that's how cooking uh, works. Uh, you're not adding that much. It will take longer because I think... I, I just think it will. If you so, let's say you had something that was one inch thick, and it was one inch by six inches by six inches. Well, there the one inch is drowning everything out, and the six inches doesn't matter. So then, if you were going to take it from a one inch thick six by six thing to a one inch thick like eighty by eighty thing, it would still cook in about the same amount of time because it's the one inch that's getting you. But because I think that your product here can roughly be modeled as a cube or a sphere, increasing the length of one of the sides actually probably will increase the cooking time, but it's hard for me to say how much, and I wasn't able to get in touch with the chef staff people to uh, figure it out. Uh, Nathan Page writes in from Lexington, North Carolina, which by the way, I know you talk about your barbecue there. I much prefer Eastern, Eastern North Carolina barbecue. No offense to Stamies in Lexington, no offense to Lexington, North Carolina. You guys, you were North Carolina barbecue? I'm a, I'm a Texas guy, sorry. All right, so I won't even get it. So, but, you, but, you, but, but what about pork, though? I mean, North Carolina's got a good pork. Uh, Alabama for pork. Really? Yeah, I like Alabama. 
We'll fight later. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we should get Kat here. She's an Alabama girl. I don't know. So what, what are you like Hill like, Country, Texas? Are you like a brisket person, a hot links person? What are you? Yeah, Hill Country, so like Austin. Yeah, brisket. Like uh It's good over there. It is. You know yeah. what I don't like though? I went to one of the famous places of Shelby Nameless. Rudy's. So no, it was so <laughs> much freaking black pepper. Mm. It was so much I mean and by the way, I love black pepper. So much. I couldn't taste anything else other than the black pepper. Mm. Also, I'm not a sauce guy. I like to just eat the meat. Yeah, I'm a sauce guy. You're a sauce guy? Yeah. Well, then you'd like Lexington because it, so North Carolina and Lexington is kind of like the, so Eastern, Eastern, like coastal North Carolina is a zero red tinge in the, in the, you know, call it a sauce, the vinegar, hot pepper stuff that you put onto your pulled pork and that your barbecue. Mm -hmm. And then when you get over the Lexington area, which if you've ever sold furniture over near like where high point, that's a big sales thing for furniture and all that stuff is Lexington, North Carolina. That's where you start getting some kind of red tinging tomato action into your into your product, and and so you know I used to go to coastal North Carolina quite a bit because my uh, sister in law Miley who now runs the Food Network magazine she used to write for newspapers down there, so I go quite a bit, and uh, was a huge fan of their of their barbecue. And then my wife once went to High Point to sell some furniture, and I did I did maybe six places seven places in a day i had a young booker still on my back when i went there and it's good but i have to say i'm an eastern guy well if you like pork too you need to go to a a boucherie in western louisiana yeah yeah those are those are good all right yeah. all right uh anyway wants to know uh what was it uh i've had good success this deer season i have several deer in the freezer so i'm looking to get creative with some of the cuts such as whole deer ham i'm from lexington and i love this style of barbecue i've smoked pork shoulders before i know there's no chance of getting a true equivalent from deer shoulder i'm wondering though if i take a whole deer shoulder uh, on the bone and smoke it for a couple of hours before braising and barbecue sauce if i can prevent the venison from drying out but still have the feel of a regular pork shoulder i don't mm. think so I don't think so. I don't think it's going to work. Uh, I, you know what I've never experimented with, but someday someone could, is just injecting a cut like that with liquid gelatin. Because the thing about, you need to add some sort of unctuousness to the deer that I just don't think is going to be there. Um, but I don't know. I've never done any tests with it. Mm. Yeah, I, I need to, I need to, we need to have some hunters on the show. Some like hardcore hunters on the show who can come in. Like We should get like, who used to do the the hunting thing here, uh, Dave? Uh, Dave, Matt. Uh, oh wow, we just went back in time. Um, I don't, I do not know. Huh. Also, we're running out of time. We're out. We're one second. I need a second question. I'm about to. I'm about to make garum. I'm about to make garum. I'm about to make garum from venison. I usually don't question subbing venison for beef in recipes other than it's considerably leaner. But wanted to double check with someone who might be able to tell me. I'm going to make the Noma beef garum. I. Uh, texted uh, uh, David Zilber from uh, Noma, who wrote the recipe for beef garum, and I say, "Yo, is it gonna be okay with venison?" And he's like, "Sure enough." He's like, "We make it with deer all the time. It's delicious. My favorite is reindeer." So there you have it. Uh, go uh, and do that. Wally uh, Wally Gomes wrote in about uh, about the fact that he enjoys what we're talking about, and somehow we're on the same wavelength that he is with like weird stuff, like Ikijime, for instance. Uh, wants to do a fryer with PID. Problem with PID control on a fryer is is that PID control doesn't get as hot as fast because it gets slowly and doesn't overshoot. With a fryer, you can maybe uh, have it go on a PID after it hits its top uh, thing, but you need very fast recovery. So be wary of using a PID controller on a fryer. 
Eric Lopez writes in about javelinas, wants to make, uh, javelinas are these little, like, pig-like animals from, like, you know, Arizona, New Mexico. Uh, someone told him not, he wants to treat, he wants to take the intestines and make them into intestine casings, sausage casings. But they'd presumably be small because javelinas are small, mm -hmm. so it'd be kind of like a lamb casing. Uh, there are apparently parasites in javelinas. Uh, there's an article, uh, I don't have time to get into Nastasia's going to kill me, but you want to look up the article, The Bulletin of Wildlife Disease, Association, Volume 4, October 1968, uh, Parasites of the Javelina in New Mexico. Most of the stuff is relative. They have Salmonella and E. coli, but not the stuff that's going to nuke you. The problem is there is a, um, there is a, a, a parasite called uh, Trichostrongulus columbiformis, uh, which is rarely transmitted through the skin, so as long as you don't eat it, it should be okay. But... Uh, you know, just be careful. Hank Shaw, the person I was talking about, the hunter, writes, uh, has an extensive section on uh, cleaning and cooking and his love of the javelina as a, as a foodstuff. All right, so I've gotten through uh, all of the questions. Speaking of parasites, you guys freeze all the Aura King? No. no. We don't have to, no. No. Uh, so it's still considered sushi grade even though it's not frozen? Mm -hmm. Yes, correct. Huh. Talk about it for, for like, give me, give me that real quick because my so, impression was that everything had to be frozen, but I guess if you can prove it's parasite free. Right. It, it does. There, there is a New York city or new york state health code that is a little vague and has been interpreted to mean that you need to freeze before serving a sushi right but if you read the actual fda guidelines on it it's clear that you don't um so uh it's a little bit of a overlap but everyone's here in the city assumes it needs to be frozen before being served as sushi that's what we're taught like straight up we're taught that yeah if you read the fda guidelines it actually uh is well, how do you guard against parasitic worms in the salmon? Or is it just because they're not wild that they don't get it? Cause they, they... Exactly. Yeah. It's beca yeah, because they're not they're not raised in the wild. They're not getting it. And um, the, feed the, the feed is heat-treated to prevent any parasites. But because, you know, you can freeze fish very well such that you don't get... Uh, I mean, the problem with freezing is that freezing, like going through a hard rigor, uh, the, the crystals kind of break the flesh apart, and when they... When it thaws again, you get drip loss and weep, uh, which can lead, especially especially in a fish that's gone through a, uh, a very hard rigor, severe. You, I hope you guys know what I mean by gapping or yeah, get, yeah, yeah. In, in, in the in the fillets and an extreme loss of texture, which is why, mm -hmm. like the really the, the the people who are doing the tunas, which are, are frozen, are yes. freezing in like very cold slurries, incredibly fast freezing to yeah. get small crystals. Super freezing. Um, it's uh, nitrogen yeah. tunnels, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, Blast freezer. Yeah. So, but you, but you don't have to, huh? We don't. I mean, we have some demand for frozen products, but it's more more for convenience. Um, you know, like a, a cruise ship, for example, wants to have frozen salmon. Is yeah. You know. Yeah. Think about it. And um, they sprinkle it with Legionnaire sauce. It's <laughs> <laughs> messing. Just that's messing. Uh, that's uh, never that, been on a cruise. That's and on now, now I will never get invited on one. Yeah, uh, the or the uh, New Zealand king that they have at Russ and Daughters. Do you do you sell that raw to a cure house here, or do you guys cure that in New Zealand? Uh, in New Zealand, we have our own smokehouse. Um, do all the processing there. We use manuka wood. Oh, uh, manuka! Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you like manuka honey? Everyone makes a big deal over the manuka honey. You it manuka is, honey person? Sure. It is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah what's not to like? I mean, I, there's a difference between what's not to like and what's to love. Those are two different things. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They do a cream so, manuka. That's really. Good. Yeah. It, is it the flavor or is it the health benefits? You know. I don't so, believe in health. So like. <laughs> 
Go ahead, go ahead. The flavor, though. Give me, give me some flavor. What are you looking for in your Manuka honey? I'm looking for delicious. Yeah. Do, oh, do, do I think Manuka honey is more delicious than... Well, I mean, the a, normal honey than is really garbage good, clover. Than really good acacia honey, for example. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, uh, I think good honey is good honey. And I don't... Um, but Manuka wood, for smoking, uh, does have a lot of really good properties. It's got a lot of antimicrobials, which is what you want when you smoke meat and fish. Um, and it has a good flavor. Like, I, if you pick up shavings mm-hmm. of Manuka wood... It kind of has like a little bit of a eucalyptusy uh, hint to it, so it's unique. It's it's a different kind of wood. But the New Zealand King cured New Zealand King though, like for those of you out in California who hate eucalyptus, it doesn't have a menthol-y hit. Like they, there's no. no menthol or pininess to New Zealand King. I can say I've eaten a lot of it. Uh, it is it is a very good product. Now uh, you have here the fresh and you have the the row, which by the way I have to take some to Booker or he will tear my head off. He's so mad that he couldn't be here today. Um, where 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 do people uh, get the product? Sure. Uh, well, our fresh salmon, um, most of it goes to restaurant trade, but there are a few places here in the city you can get the fresh product. Um, fresh Direct is probably the the most easiest way to get it. Um, oh, that's right, and they they label it too, right? Yep. Yeah. Because yep. they also have like lesser priced stuff that's not. It'll say or King. or King Salmon from New Zealand. How come you guys put the put the like? Is, what were people calling it before you put the bar over the O? <laughs> um, we started with the bar over the O. I started because yeah. like people. Yeah. I don't know. Is there any other way someone would pronounce it? Ura. It's just a, uh, <laughs> ooh ooh. <laughs> yeah. or I, I don't know. And also, you go by King. You you, you don't use the Chinook because that's specifically a Pacific Northwest thing, right? Because Chinook yeah. feels American. Great helicopter, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, world class. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sh- Chinook. Ways. Chinook's yeah. a North American word. It's in. Indi- it's a word. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, yeah. First people. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so uh, Anastasia and I and the crew have been pounding delicious uh, fresh salmon. And uh, is this a? We're dipping it in soy. I haven't had the. Uh, what do you? What do you guys call it? Just roe. You don't call it ikuri. You just call it roe, right? Cured roe. Yeah. I'm gonna be eating that. I'll be eating that after the show. Listen, thank you guys. since this is yeah, thanks. This is the last thing. I'm gonna do a like 30 second oh, classics right. in the field. Ready? <laughs> no, I'll hold Start on. Classics in the field. Yeah, we do this every day. Okay, so listen. I don't have a lot of time to tell you about this. Uh, Edward H. Stahl was the only person in the United States, you know, at the time, and maybe even still, that's made a million dollars off of rabbits in a single year. He had the first million-dollar-a-year rabbit business. He uh, invented a breed called the giant chinchilla rabbit, which he did as a fur-raising animal, but also does as meat. And he is, like, without question, he, he invented this breed or developed this breed, I think, in the 20s, like 1921 or 1926. He wrote a bunch of books and was the reason there was, including my crazy Uncle Rick, not crazy Uncle Marty, who jumped out of the window, crazy Uncle Rick, was part of this kind of the, there was a craze, uh, I guess just post-war, of people trying to raise rabbits for money because they thought that that's how you're going to get rich quick because rabbits, you know, they breed like rabbits. Uh, so there's a book called Chinchilla Rabbits, Standard Heavyweight and Giant by Edward H. Stahl. And I will read just the poem in the front. You can stop playing that. That's your 30-second timer. All right. Matt, I will murder you in your sleep if you cut off this poem. This is my Christmas poem to you people! (laughs) Dedicated to the American chinchilla rabbit breeder. And just so you know, it's going to spell out chinchilla. These aren't chinchillas, the fur-dusting things from South America. These are rabbits. They're called chinchilla rabbits. C is for chinchilla, the rabbit supreme. H is for Her Highness, 
the chinchilla queen. I is for investment, which you will not lose. N is for none better if chinchillas you choose. C is for champion, the peer of the lot. H is for hardiness, which chinchillas have got. I is for inspiration for young and for old. L is for love's labor that never grows cold. L is for Langiera, the source of Chinchilla's name. And A is for association that's bringing them fame. Happy holidays, Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.